This time, I'm going to invite you to take a Bible and to open it to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus is our second book of the Bible. And it is there that we find the first expression of what is known as the Ten Commandments. And the original Hebrew would have actually been ten words or phrases that we have put complete sentences to. But there's something unique about them in a book where many, many laws are given. Part of what made these laws stand out was how they were given, that just a few chapters later, what's described for us is that these ten were engraved in stone as a marker to say that these ten are foundational, that if you're going to make sense of all the other laws and all the other prescriptions given in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and in Deuteronomy, you have to understand these foundational Ten Commandments. And so we're actually on the sixth one today, which is verse 13. We've been going through them one week at a time, and they're brief, but partly because they're foundational and they help make sense of so much of the rest of the Bible, what we're doing is we're trying to look at each commandment from three different perspectives. First, as a lens, what does this commandment, if it's true, if this is really given by God and he wants us to believe this, how does this help us understand the world in which we live in? That's, that's what a lens does. It helps us see better. So for me, having bad vision, I need a lens to see anything. But those of you who even have really good vision, you have 20-20 vision, you might use a lens in your job if you're a researcher to look through a telescope and to see things that to your natural eye, to 20-20 vision, you would not see the germs or the various things that are in a microscope. Did I say telescope? I'm going to mess these up. Yeah, sorry. You'd look in a microscope to try to identify that. You look to a telescope to look out into the world and things that we can't see, depending on where the sun is positioned or whatnot, uh, we wouldn't see various things that are out there in the universe. So we use lenses to help us see things more clearly. And when we come to the Bible, it actually helps us see things about our world that we might otherwise miss. A lot of times what it's doing is confirming something that we know in our hearts to be true because God said that he not only wrote this law in stone, but to each and every one of us, he's given us a conscience and we know certain things to be right or wrong whether we've ever heard someone tell it to us or not. And so at the very, very youngest of ages, we can cry out when someone takes a toy from us and say, no, that's mine, that's wrong. We're arguing that some kind of injustice has been done whether or not anyone has ever told us that that was wrong, and even whether or not it's true in some instances. So first we look at what does this commandment tell us about the world in terms of a lens? And then once we get that clear picture in our minds, the Bible says that it also is supposed to function like a mirror for us, that when we hear the word of God, we're not supposed to immediately think about how this applies to the person sitting next to us or to someone else that we know, but we're supposed to examine our own life in light of what it says. So we're trying to get a picture of what we look like in a mirror, and then after that, to realize that also, through all of that, the Bible wants us to ultimately see Christ and who he is, that the Bible is not primarily about us, it's about God. So what is true about God if these things are true about our world? So hopefully you're there by now, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, very, very short verse. It says, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. We can read it three times and it'd still be short. You shall not murder. Very, very basic commandment. So one of the first things that if we take this commandment and ask what does it show us about the world through a lens, we see that life is sacred, unique, and irreplaceable. 
Murder is not wrong if life is not sacred. That's the basic point. That what this tells us about the world and the way that God has made it is that your life is sacred in the eyes of God. That though, yes, there are 7 billion people now in the world, the value of any individual life is not affected by how many lives there are. Each individual person on their own as a unit before God is considered sacred, irreplaceable, totally unique. You have a set of fingerprints and a set of DNA that no one else has. And so many times, things about our world tell us we're just a part of a big crowd. We're just one in a great big number. Or Sometimes we believe lies about ourselves that no one really loves us and no one really cares for us and no one will even miss us if we're gone. And we get those messages in all kinds of ways from our world. Because through advertising and marketing, so many times we're told that our life is only valuable in as much as we do things for other people. Our life is only valuable if we're intelligent or if we're beautiful or if we own something or if we accomplish something. Well, then we're important. Then we're significant. But to believe according to the Bible that every single life is valuable, irrespective of how long that life is or what that life is able to accomplish in any given period of time, is a whole different way of looking at the world. And it affects the types of decisions and the types of priorities that we make in a way that if we say, no, 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 it's only the strong that matter, it's only the pretty that matter, it's only the successful that matter. If as Christians we accept what this commandment is telling us, that it's wrong to murder because life is sacred, then we hopefully give value to every single life that exists. And it's irreplaceable. When you're gone... No one can be you. You might have a sibling that looks like you. You might have a a parent that sounds like you. But there is only one you. It is just in the experience of these last couple of months for me, this point has been driven home and I shared it with someone in the congregation as we were just grieving together about the loss of life in our various families and situations that we know about. And I just said honestly to the person, I said, I know what 1 Corinthians 15 says. And we sang it this morning. I I couldn't sing it this morning, just partly because of where I am. But I know it says the sting of death is gone. But that is one of those phrases and statements in the Bible that I read and I say, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because this still really stings. Because no one person can ever be replaced by another person, that sting is as sharp as ever. It's not gone. That aspect of it is not gone. No one else can fill that. No one else can be that person. Because we're totally unique. I heard an artist describe one time that if you're, if you're doing a work, let's say you're writing a novel, you're, you know that you're producing something truly original when if you were to pass away before you finished what you were doing, no one would know how to finish it. Because you are trying to express your own thoughts, your own ideas, your way of seeing the world. And that is something that by definition is, 
is unique to you. We might be able to guess, we might be able to project certain things, but ultimately, if, if it's really you expressing yourself, then, then no one else can finish the last paragraph if you haven't taken the time to write it. And that's how God has made us. That is how he has wired us. And so when he looks upon the world, he doesn't say, he doesn't just look in percentages. For us, the larger any kind of organization gets, all of a sudden we just have to break it down into categories to, to keep any track of it. But God doesn't have that problem. He looks at each and every person created in his image and he values them as sacred. Sacred because they're unique. Sacred because if they're gone, they can never be replaced. And then if that's true, the other lens that we look at is then the protection of life is noble and just. Anyone who gives themselves in the protection of the lives of others is doing something that is noble and just and that we should esteem in our society. Anyone who gives themselves to the protection and the preservation of life. When I think of, I get a decent window into the reality of pain and death as a pastor, but it's still nowhere near as regular as someone who's a nurse or an ER doctor or a paramedic or someone who works at a funeral home or someone who serves in the military or someone who puts on a uniform as a police officer and every single day goes knowing that their main just prayer is that they could come home that night. I'll even say that, that that is a different level of what I don't wake up most days wondering if I'll make it home that night, right? And so anyone who commits their lives in the protection and the preservation of human life, we should in our society esteem them highly, that what they are doing is noble and just. Any mother taking care of a kid we should look at as one of the most sacred callings because you are preserving life. There is a human life totally dependent upon you. If you do not feed, if you do not change diapers, if you do not change the outfit, they won't do it for themselves. Whatever the tasks are, there are a whole variety of them, and some of them are paid and some of them are unpaid, but ultimately when the the focus of it is the protection and the preservation of life, we should value that and esteem that highly. And so as Christians, we should show, show respect to anyone in any position whose primary goal and focus is to preserve and to protect life. We value that because this commandment tells us that life is sacred and murder is wrong, violence of any kind. If you actually see in the footnote, of, if you're using one of the pew Bibles before you, you'll see that it's not just murder, that it's ultimately condemning. And so in some of the older translations, it would have said, thou shalt not kill, because it does have in mind other forms of death apart from just murder. It has just pure negligence in mind, so that if someone says, well, I didn't intend to kill anyone, but I was driving my car so fast, I was breaking all the laws, and I caused an accident, this would prohibit that as well. It would say, don't be so ignorant, don't be so foolish in how you do things, and how you manage things, that it leads to someone's death. So it has more in mind than just malicious forms of murder. Because no matter what the cause of death is, the life is irreplaceable. And so if we take that seriously and we esteem and value the protection of life, we also then in every one of those spheres where someone has the power of life and death, there are some forms of, and systems of accountability that when a life is taken, we have some system of valuation that says, was that absolutely necessary? Did you do the best job that you could do? Because we can't go back on this. We can't rewind. Was there something else that could have been done other than 
what happened. Because if there is, we want to do anything else that we can do before that because we can't go backwards once a life is taken. And in our society, in every sphere, whether it's in the the police force or the medical community, there are boards and systems in place to evaluate people in their profession because they are entrusted with the power of life and death. We want to know that those people are accountable to someone else in the decisions that they ultimately make. And then if that's true, if life is really sacred, unique and irreplaceable, and the protection of life is noble and just, the willingness to sacrifice one's life for the good of another is the greatest form of love. That's what Jesus said. He said, no greater love has any man than the one who's willing to lay down his life for his friends. There is no greater form of love. In our day and age, and we're kind of jumping the gun because next week is do not commit adultery, but in our day and age, which is described feelings as the primary source of love, sex is considered the greatest expression of love. That's not what the Bible teaches. It says sacrifice is the greatest form of love. The willingness to lay down one's life so that someone else might live is the most inspiring thing that someone could do. That when you're reading a story of history or you're just hearing a a dramatized play that someone has made up, if they put into that story a version of sacrifice, there's something about that that will get to your heart in a way that nothing else will. Because someone has given up the one thing they can't get back. They know the cost involved. There's a really good movie out that I don't want to spoil for you, but there's such a powerful, it's a kid's movie, but there was such a powerful moment where one of the characters realizes the only way for the other one to live is that if he's willing to die. And he chooses to. It's a totally powerful scene, crying in a kid's movie. Pixar's really talented. They have really good story writers. But it's true, we know it. When we see that, that someone would make sacrifices, and then again, jumping the gun for next week and what ultimately the vision of marriage is, is a relationship between two people that are making lifelong sacrifices, living sacrifices for one another, and that that ultimately brings a level of intimacy that nothing else could ever provide. That's the vision, that... Our feelings eventually follow our choices and our actions and our willingness to give of ourselves for the good of other people, to make sacrifices for them. So sometimes that is laying down your life. Sometimes that's just saying no to your own desires, no to your own preferences so that someone else could advance, so that someone else could mature, so that someone else could develop. It is a beautiful thing. And it is what we as Christians are called to, that if we say we're called by God to love the world, what that love requires of us are sacrifices. Sacrifices of our time and our energy, of our resources. For many Christians throughout the world, sacrifices of their lives. And it's one of the ways we express the love of God. So that's all that's contained in this command because we can't make sense of it. Why is murder wrong if life is not sacred? If people don't matter? If, if there's no individual value to any one of us, why is it wrong for governments to abuse their people? Why is it wrong for parents to neglect their children? Why is it wrong unless 
what it tells us is that life is sacred. The protection of it is noble and valuable and the willingness to sacrifice it is the highest expression of love. But anyone who also would have heard this commandment would have been familiar with how the story begins in Genesis. And so as we look at the mirror of the word, I invite you to go to Genesis chapter four. Because one of the ways that the sinfulness of this world is affecting all of us is precisely in how we treat one another and the reality that we do not love each other as we should, that we are not willing to sacrifice for each other, and that more often than not, we're actually willing to harm other people for our own good. And we get this in Genesis chapter four, that after Adam and Eve's sin, the very first story is a story of a brother murdering another brother. Verse one, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore her, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering. But Cain in his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will, not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And that's where we'll stop for now. But here, this very first story, after Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, is of two sons, both of them bringing a sacrifice before God, one of them being accepted and the other one not. And here's the thing. The reason that Cain's sacrifice did not get accepted was not because there was a comparison between the two. Oh, well, his was the better one, so you lose. It wasn't a zero-sum game. Both could have been accepted. Both could have been rejected. They were both evaluated on individual terms. One was accepted. One was rejected. And so now he has to deal with the shame of that sense that my brother has gotten something that I haven't gotten. So the way he handles that is not to repent for his own sins, but one of the ways he deals with his own shame is to take out and to harm his brother. Because the presence of his brother and the acceptance of his brother only adds more shame to his sense of embarrassment that he could have done otherwise. And so he murders him. And then the story, as the Bible unfolds, is that you don't get much past chapter six and the whole world has fallen into this kind of a chaos. Where because of people's broken relationship with God, their broken relationship with each other means they're more often than not sacrificing for the good of each other, but they're all trying to harm each other so that they can get ahead in what they desire. And in that kind of a world, it just goes to pure chaos. A world where people are willing to harm other people for their own good is a self-destructive world. And so the flood ultimately brings not something that would have not happened otherwise, but something that was already happening. They were already all destroying themselves. And then you go to the New Testament in James chapter four, and you see that this theme continues. 
This is right after the book of Hebrews. This is on page 1012. James chapter 4. Just the first three verses. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So here we have this description consistent with Genesis chapter 4 that our tendency to harm, our tendency to murder, to fight and to quarrel comes fundamentally from something broken inside of us that we're out there and we think that the way to get satisfaction in life is to have all of our desires met and so if there's any unmet desires we need to meet them and anyone who is in our way is considered an obstacle to be removed rather than a person to love and to serve. And the history of our world shows that this is borne out time and again by all of us across cultures. That when we exalt ourselves and our passions and our desires, we become an increasingly violent world. And if someone were to come to us as just an outside observer of our culture and say, okay, well now we're, I mean, come on, we're 2,000 years later, right? We're different, we're advanced, we're better off, aren't we? We don't think in these terms, we don't fantasize about violence, we don't project violence ultimately as a good thing, we value life. What do you think an outside observer would say? He said, I'm just here, so I just want to tune in and watch what the most popular shows are. I just want to go to the store and say, you hand me the three best-selling video games. I want to see what, what sold the best in last, last, last year, just five top movies. I want to go see them. And you will see time and again a culture that rather than being heartbroken over violence, still continues to fantasize about it, celebrate it, and promote it. Now, part of this command acknowledges that there are some who are set aside for the protection of life and that that is a noble and just thing. But there's still a sense in which even those who are set aside to those tasks, then if their minds are formed right, any time their own responsibility requires them to make a decision where someone's life is ended, that, that isn't a cause of celebration. That's a cause of mourning. That breaks their heart, that that would have to be the reality of what takes place. And so Christians for a long time have tried to develop certain boundaries that people in positions of authority and power over others would try to adhere to and obey. You might not agree with all of them. I don't actually agree with all of them. But there's a fairly robust doctrine called just war theory that the desire is that heads of nations would look at them and say, before we would consider considering our, you know, committing people to action, we need to make sure we go through this checklist. And then even the moment we go into action, there are certain rules that should be applicable in the conduct of such things. I.e. that if someone chooses to surrender, that you would accept the surrender. And not say, well, I won't accept your surrender, you're my enemy and I'm just taking you out. No, so there, there's a robust list of rules to say, well, if if this is what we value, and if life is sacred, and we're only doing this because we're trying to protect life, then we should conduct ourselves in a certain way, because as Christians, we don't believe the end justifies the means. 
that God cares not only about what we're trying to accomplish, but he cares all along the way about how we behave. And are we behaving in a way consistent with what the end is? And as Christians, we should be able to have very, very, therefore, honest conversations. And actually, among each other, first of all, that is apolitical. That it doesn't have to do with whether you're voting this way or this way, but just to say, as Christians, we should hold certain things valuable, and it should really bother us when those things are gone against. Or the majority of time, do we just sort of swim along with what our culture says and what our culture is willing to do? So just a historical example. Traditionally, most theories of any government engaging in war would say you need to make a distinction between civilian life and those who are in uniform in hostilities against you. And that you should seek to reduce as much as possible any loss of civilian life of those who aren't engaged in the actual conflict. So that when we now look back 60 years on the fact that as a nation, we're the only nation to use atomic weapons in warfare that primarily killed non-combatants. That as Christians, we should be able to at least feel some tension. (laughs) At least say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Every written theory thought on by theologians, philosophers, political scientists has said, if you want to conduct something this complex and put people's lives on the line, there's a certain way to do it. What, What should we think about that? Now, the reality of war is that it's usually incredibly complicated where you somehow fall in line and say, yeah, I, I, I think that was immoral. That, that was immoral. I, I, don't, I don't know a single system of thought in which I could call that a moral decision. Now you might say, but was it necessary? And that's where you say, yeah, I feel like we're choosing between a bunch of bad options and that that's ultimately what we're deciding between. But you still acknowledge that they're all bad options. None of them are something that you celebrate. None, none of them are something that you would desire As a a government, we've been formed in such a way that it is our Congress that is given the power to declare war, not our president. And since World War II, we've not had a congressional declaration of war in any military engagement that we're currently involved in. One of the reasons this becomes, we're sort of conflicted in this is because we want to honor those who make a choice and swear an oath to serve on our behalf to protect our Constitution. And I want to honor them. That's why I said that the protection of life is noble and just, and anyone who commits themselves to that is good. But it should be totally nonpartisan to then say, those men and women who take an oath to protect our Constitution should be served by a legislative branch, a judicial branch, and an executive branch that makes some effort to obey that Constitution. Because they're giving their life to protect it. The least thing you could do in a $2,000 suit in Washington is obey it. That should be a fairly consistent statement from Christians all throughout this country. Because when the decision goes wrong, they don't get to then have dinner that night. We won't get to write our history. We can write our own press releases. But 200 years from now, someone else will write our history. And right now, when we look backwards on the Civil War, there's PhD students all over the country that are examining sermons 
by preachers leading up to the Civil War and just saying, I'm just curious, if you were a Christian in America and you went to church on a Sunday morning leading up to and then during the Civil War, what did you hear preached? Now, all those people are dead. And so they can't write their press releases anymore. But we have collections and collections and collections of sermons to say, was, was this challenge? Were Christians thinking about it? Were they wrestling about it? And that'll be true of us, that a generation long after us will say, so this was going on and this was going on. I'm just wondering, in a place where people said they took life seriously and valued it as sacred and believed that because that wasn't just a good idea, but they thought God believed that and that God valued that. What did they say in situations when life was taken? Or in this nation, the amount of life that's been taken legally since the passing of Roe v. Wade in our country, in the tens and tens of millions. And if according to Genesis 4, it says that the blood of of innocent Abel came up to God, that he heard that. So what does it sound like in heaven when now there's loss of innocent life all over this world? What does it sound like? I don't know. But I know that, at least in my own heart, the desire is to sound some type of alarm for any Christian that will listen to say, if we value life as sacred, we need to be consistent. And we need to hold people accountable in some way to the decisions they make because life is irreplaceable. And which is why also the Bible all throughout says, wherever you come on the issues, you better be praying for your leaders. Because they have to make some of these decisions in split moments that we can reflect on and we can debate and discuss and try to make plans now so that 10 years from now when we have to make some of those decisions, we make them in a healthier way. But we do have elected officials right now that might be making decisions that none of us are aware of and there's not even time to inform us. So absolutely, as a church, we should be praying for them valuing them, esteeming them highly, and desiring that they are humble before God in everything that they do. But when we put all of those pieces together and then we go to Romans chapter 5, we see what fundamentally makes the gospel different than anything else the world has to offer. And this is where we see through a window Christ himself. Romans chapter 5 on page 942, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one person will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What an amazing description. While we were still weak, while we were still ungodly, while we were still enemies of God, he was willing to send his son to experience the sting of death for us. So that as Jesus said those words, that no greater love has anyone that he would lay down his life for his friends, he knew that just moments in his future, he would be laying down his life so that others could live. And not just his friends, but his enemies. That the very way that they would be reconciled back to him would be through his own blood. That he was willing to give a sacrifice. So if the willingness to lay down your life so that your friends could live is the greatest expression of love, what is it when you're willing to lay down your life so that your enemy might live? so that their heart can be changed and converted and made new and so that they who are not a part of the family could be a part of the family. I don't know, but when I ask that question, what does it sound like in heaven when all of the innocent blood of the world cries out to God, we get a picture of it in the cross. That when the innocent one was on the cross, it says that in the middle of the day, everything went dark. And that he cried out. He cried out as the distinct, pure, innocent one. And he gave up his life for others. That's why it's hard if, if you're watching a dramatized version of the gospel, watching the stories of Jesus' life, because what you are watching is someone die. And there's no way to sanitize that. There's no way to sugarcoat that. And so when we celebrate communion and we say, here's the broken body, here's the broken blood shed for us, that's why there's a a solemnness to it. Because it was his actual life, it was his actual body, blood poured out for us as a means of reconciliation so that we could come to him. So that whatever our story is, that when we look into the mirror and we realize we haven't valued life like we should, because we make fun of people, we put people down, we've bullied people in the past. There's a million ways that we make people's lives feel like they're not significant, like they're not sacred, like they don't matter to us. That we all can then come to God and see that he himself was willing to come and to offer what was irreplaceable so that we could have a salvation in him that is irrevocable. What more could he have given? He couldn't. He gave everything for you and for me. And that's why the gospel is better than any other story, any other promise that anyone can try to make to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. And we thank you that you do value our lives as sacred that we're not just numbers on an Excel spreadsheet. We're not just percentages in a research report. That you know each one of us by name and that you value us and care for us.
that it breaks your heart any time someone is mistreated or abused in our world. That when we see what looks like injustice prevailing, that you are a God who is there and you know about every innocent life taken. That nothing is out of your knowledge or view. And Father, though we were so deserving of punishment for our devaluing of human life, we thank you that you were willing to send your son as a sacrifice so that we could see and experience eternal life. I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you, that struggles to follow you, that in various things says, I believe, but there are plenty of areas where I need help. We need your help with our unbelief. We just pray that you would do that through your spirit. Draw us closer to you and help us to be people that don't run over others for our own good, but that are willing to sacrifice our own preferences, our own desires, our own needs so that other people can grow and flourish and ultimately come to know you. In your son's name we pray, amen.